so i think this movement now it is shaking up indian society because the peasants are saying we are the guys who produce everything you can't treat us like this we don't want to come to your city you want to come to us and take over our land we were not going to allow it stick your neck out the weekly podcast of the giraffe heroes foundation Barbed wire, rats, iron nails and makeshift walls have been used to barricade Delhi's borders against thousands of protesting farmers. There is no issue in today's India more compelling and distressing than the ongoing farmers' agitation in New Delhi. Despite several rounds of talks, the issue remains unresolved. I am your host, Jean-Pierre Aguiar-Durañona, and I welcome you to the podcast to restore your faith in humanity. Welcome to Stick Your Neck Out. Dear listeners, I know I told you last week that today's podcast was going to be about taboos, but due to the current situation in India, I've invited today Girafido Dilip Simeon, author and historian, founding member of the Association of Indian Labor Historians. Welcome, Dilip, to our podcast. Thank you, Jean-Pierre, and uh, I'm very happy to be with all of you. And uh, of course, there is an ongoing agitation in India. We shall talk about that. And of course, you're free to ask me any other questions. Dilip, thousands of protesters, many driving tractors, took the streets of New Delhi on Jan 26. What is happening in India with the farmers? Why are farmers protesting there? Okay, now what happened on January 26 was only one day when they entered Delhi. And that is also a small group of the farmers' protests which entered Delhi. The protests have already been going on for two months, more than two months. So January the 26th is not the crucial date. It began in November and it's been going on ever since then. In fact, it began even earlier in certain provinces and then they decided to come to Delhi. So one uh, one misconception that we should get rid of is that it all happened on January 26th. Uh, January 26th, they decided to come and do a parade on the outer outskirts of Delhi, all this time they have been sitting just outside the official border of Delhi. So there are several borders, you know, several border entry points. So they have been sitting on all the different entry points. They decided to come into Delhi and wage a parade. A small group of them broke away from that main parade and went into Delhi proper. And that caused a lot of commotion. So we won't go into that just now because it's a bit very complicated. But let me just say that this protest involves not just a few thousand, it involves a few hundred thousand. Right now, there could be anything between three to five hundred thousand farmers sitting outside on various entry points, but not inside Delhi, just outside the border of Delhi. And they have been protesting. People come and go. Some people come in and some people go back to their villages. This is what has been going on. Okay, so you wanted to know what is the, what are the causes of this. In September last year, the government pushed through three bills dealing with agriculture. It's a complex issue, but let me just say that as far as the farmers see it, the farmers, and mind you, this word farmer is also relatively new in India. They used to be called peasants. Of course, there are several types of peasants. There are rich peasants and there are poor peasants and there are landless peasants. But this word farmer was not in use until a couple of decades ago. Anyway, be that as it may, we have certain parts of India which have become the suppliers of of grain, food grain to the rest of the country. So the farmers have been protected from the up and down of the market by getting something called a minimum support price because the government needs them to produce the food grain. All right. So this uh, area, especially in North India, became an area which specialized in food grain. And this happened because in the late 60s, the effort was made to start what something called the Green Revolution with a lot of artificial fertilizers and so on. So the farmers of northern India became specialists in the production of food grains. And it has had a lot of ecological consequences. It's a very complicated thing. But in order to protect them from the up and down of the market fluctuations, they were given a minimum support price. 
Now, the farmers fear that this minimum support price will be removed. They will be thrown to the mercy of big corporations, that big corporations will enter into farming in a big way. They might end up losing their land. This is what they fear. The government says they need have no fear. But the fact is that this legislation was forced through very quickly and without the necessary safeguards that we have in India for legislation, which affects millions of people. Uh, it was pushed through almost uh, in, in, in a very rapid manner. And this raised the suspicion of many farmers. So it's something that affects the lives of millions of people. It affects minimum support prices. It affects commercialization of agriculture. And you know, in various parts of the world, there is not a full-scale commercialization of agriculture. In places like France and in parts yeah. of Europe, it's mm. not a full-scale commercialization. Farmers are still protected from the market. So this has caused a lot of fear among the farmers and it is truly a very, very big movement. Okay, I understand. The protest now in its third month presents the biggest challenge Prime Minister Narendra Modi has faced. Who are they and what do they want? Okay, the farmers comprise several categories of people dependent on agriculture. Some of them are richer, some of them are poorer. What we may have called rich farmers, poor farmers, middle farmers, owning land to some degree or the other, which large holdings, employing laborers or with relatively smaller holdings. So there is a spectrum of farm holdings. All right? And the, the farmers include people who are relatively better off and they also include people who are not so well off and who have to toil a lot on their own land. So there's a spectrum. Now what is happening is that People tend to do class analysis of the farmers. But there is something else happening here, which is family labor. Many families labor together. Whether they are poor or rich, they still labor together in managing the farm or in actually tilling the soil or doing other kind of work. So women and children are also involved in this. So the point that, that is bothering the farmers is that these new rules and regulations They make it possible for large-scale corporations to enter into the market for agricultural produce and remove all the traditional grain dealers. In parts of northern India, you may have heard of these areas like Punjab. Mm -hmm. uh, in yeah. parts of northern India, there is a long, long tradition of what is called artias. And the artias are actually the people who are the, the, the grain dealers in the grain markets. And the grain dealers are being described as middlemen and so on, but that's a simplification. The grain dealers are also people who help out the farmers. They buy their products at a, at a certain time. They give them loans if necessary. They give them concessional rates if necessary. So there's a kind of symbiotic relationship between these grain dealers and the farmers. It's a long-established practice. Now the government is saying they are middlemen and we'll get rid of the middlemen and you can deal directly with the markets all over the country. The farmers say it's, it's impossible for us to deal directly with markets thousands of miles away. We don't want to do away with these so-called middlemen. We don't consider them middlemen. So there, there's a problem like that. All right. Then there are other problems related to loans. For instance, people... all In all the debate that is going on, very few people are actually commenting on the fact that Something like three to four hundred thousand or more farmers have committed suicide in India in the last 15 or 20 years. That's a huge number. Since the time of economic liberalization in India, let us say for about 25 years, there have been hundreds of thousands of farmers have committed suicide. Farmers or people who are dependent on agriculture for a, for a living. And many of them have committed suicide because of being in debt. They can't pay back the loan. And there are, in many cases, the interest rates on tractors and farm loans are much higher than they can afford to pay. So basically, in a society which is so heavily rural and agricultural, in India, society is still a heavily agricultural society. You see? So even now in India, you should know that, that a large number of the, of the workforce in cities is still dependent on the village as a social cushion. You know, workers in India don't have that kind of guaranteed minimum wage, although it's very, it, there's a guaranteed minimum wage, but it's never properly implemented. 
they don't have healthcare benefits maternity benefits they, they have very very few workers have access to this the fallback option for most workers in the country is still the village mm. yeah during the pandemic you know when the pandemic was declared and then there was a lockdown declared all over india you know in a very yes. short yes. time a lockdown was declared and millions of workers were walking back to their homes because the train stopped hundreds of people died walking you know it's impossible to imagine walking and they wanted to go home because the village is home so the village is a very important part of indian society it also is a social safety net for indian workers and now there is a real existential fear among the indian working class as well as the farming population that their life is going to be completely overrun by big corporations and this leads actually to my next question critics say Prime Minister Narendra Modi's approach to dissent increasingly involves stifling dissenting voices, blocking the internet and cracking down on journalists. What do you think about the way the situation is handled? Let me just say that nowadays it is there's a climate of fear in the country. There are many many people who have criticized the government and who find themselves in jail. There are activists. There's even an 80 plus activist, uh, a Jesuit priest called Stan Swami, who's in jail. All right. There are people who are in jail for having fought for the rights of the underprivileged. In the farmers' agitation, also there are there are very senior people, elderly people have also been you know arrested and so on. So the atmosphere is let let me say that there's an atmosphere of fear. I don't even know whether even talking like this in in a public space is wise but the fact is that many people are saying this there's still a fight back going on in india people are struggling against the erosion of civil liberties and democratic liberties it it is undoubtedly the case that the government does not like to hear criticism and there's a great deal of what we may call impunity so allies of the government activists who are allies of the government if they misbehave in any way or they do activities which are uh, criminally liable we find that in very few cases are the actual cases cases being registered whereas opponents of the government find cases registered against them so there is an erosion of civil liberties and democratic liberties i don't want to name any any particular leader or any particular minister i don't want to name them The fact is that we in India we have a flourishing democracy but democracy has to fight for itself and let me say that the farmers are also bothered about that it's not simply a matter of agriculture anymore it's also the right to protest it's also the right to enter their own capital city if they want to enter it okay? yes of course they have yeah. maintained they have maintained a non-violent profile all this time okay there was mm-hmm. one uh, incident that happened on january the 26th which was a group which some people feel was what we call aja provocateur it's possible some of the people who led that breakaway group um, are people who are very suspicious characters i won't say more about them but it is not so obvious that that whole episode was something that the bulk of the farmers wanted they did not want that to happen they have been peaceful they have been nonviolent and they have been sitting uh, for two months outside the 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 the, the borders of delhi so yes uh, the way in which the government has has treated the protest is not a happy uh, way of dealing with it the farmers say that since you passed these laws without asking us and you you did it in such a rapid way then you should be prepared to repeal them and renegotiate the whole thing that is the the demand now whether it will happen or not i can't say all i can say is that this movement is not a movement led by any politician you see what the government and its allies do is that they maintain some kind of civility on the face of it and there's a whole army of what we call trolls on social media which engage in the most vicious kind of abuse vicious to the point of calling them all anti national even now what is happening is that that the trolls are accusing the whole farmers movement of being anti national as if india's sovereignty is being threatened or something you know it's ridiculous so yeah. this is ridiculous anybody who criticizes the government is treated as a traitor people don't like it and you see one one must remember about this lot of farmers that a large number of the of soldiers and policemen are recruited from here and what has happened is there because the mainstream media has is is now functioning as a completely placid yeah 
you know, it, it, it domesticated media, they're not doing the job of reporting. There's a lot of abuse. In fact, in some of the Hindi media and all, it's it's very frightening atmosphere of hatred directed against the farmers. So what's happening is that there's a whole lot of small scale channels that have opened up, which is giving voice to the farmers, in which there are literally hundreds of thousands of people are listening to those and tuning into those and speaking. That's important. It's important to speak. Yeah, everybody is talking. Ordinary people are talking. Very, very simple people are talking. I could even send you some of these clips, but you won't understand it. But they're speaking out and they're very knowledgeable, yeah. very sensible. They're saying you're promising so much money. They're dissecting the arguments. And one of the things they're really angry about is being accused of being anti-national. They say it's our sons who go and stand on the border. When they're standing on the border, then they're patriots. When their father is standing here, then they are anti-national. They don't like it at all, you know. No, of course. I mean, nobody likes that. I must point out one more thing because this is important to understand theoretically. That this is not a movement led by any political party. Political parties are going to them because they sense that they would like to be known, to be seen as supporting them. But they are not giving a platform to any political party. They've studiously kept out all the political parties. And the government is anxious to show that it's, you know, this party, that party. But it's not. Yeah. So in this sense, it's a movement of the people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are people even close to the ruling party who are part of this movement. So it's across the political spectrum. It is a movement of farmers and of agricultural population against the encroachment of corporations into their daily life and their livelihood. That's how they feel. It's not a political movement. It's a movement of farmers, not for farmers. It's a movement of the workers, not for the workers. You see? So this is very yeah, that's important. important. I mean, this... Yeah, it's a, it's a mass movement. It's not a politically led movement, but it's a mass movement. It's so far, it's kept political parties and leaders out and says so. You mentioned before that the protests are peaceful, but... At least one protester was killed and 300 police officers were injured in New Delhi after the farmers called for repeal of contentious new agriculture laws. It means there is indeed violence. It is a non-peaceful protest. How did the violence erupt? See, this violence and the death of one protester and the attacks on policemen, all this happened only on 26th of January when some a small group of farmers entered certain part of Delhi. It was not something that has happened in the outskirts on the borders. So there have been instances where Anjou provocateurs have got even into those areas and tried to start a row and where the farmers, and mind you, these are very muscular farmers. They are not weak people. They are people, many of them are retired, uh, they're military soldiers and so on. So they're not, they're not physically weak. They can deal with it. But they have maintained utmost discipline. And I have heard so many speeches from the farmers' leaders saying, at all costs, we have to be peaceful. Even if people attack us and they shoot us, we are not going to respond. So this is a traditional Gandhian uh, movement of, you know, I mean, whether or not they talk of Gandhi, but this is what it is. In India, this is the, yeah, the strongest yeah. kind of democratic, democratic tradition where you say, I will sustain violence, but I will not do violence. Now, it's not just that particular incident which is which is very controversial and you can explore it on your own people can your listeners can explore it because there's a lot of dispute about why it happened and who who made it happen all right uh, that that maybe ajam provocateur started it okay i don't believe that that was something that was planned by the farmers movement it was not many the leaders of the farmers movement have condemned that incident and they've said don't don't paint us with the mm. brush you, you know So I leave that out. But let me say that not just the person killed uh, on January 26, but aside from that, over the last two and a half months, well over 100 people have died. It could be 120 or 140. There are some people who have committed suicide by drinking poison or shooting themselves. There are other people who have died out of hunger, out of cold or disease or whatever it is. But of these people sitting outside, well over 100 people have died so far. And many of them have said, committed suicide and said, we are committing suicide because of the government attitude. So they're taking their own life. So the violence is not something that they are doing. 
apart from that one incident on the 26th, it's not that this movement has not been violent at all. In fact, that is the real reason why the government cannot deal with it. It's very easy to deal with violence. So anyway. Dilip, you are also a trustee of Aman, an Indian non-profit that envisages a proactive role for civil society in the reduction of conflict and the mitigation of its effects. Its philosophy is based on the concept of ahimsa and samrasta. I hope I say it uh, right. Non-violence and harmony. Would you mind explaining these concepts? Having read your biography, I would dare to say it is also your life philosophy. Okay, basically harmony would mean some way of finding resolution to conflicts in a manner that does not require hating people and negating their existence or crushing them in any way emotionally or mentally or whatever. So that is what the harmony means. And this harmony has some real meaning in India because despite all the conflicts in India, various traditions have learned to coexist with harmony. So even though there is one way of political thinking which says that people of different faiths, different religious faiths cannot live together, but on the contrary, we find in India that they have been living together. And they do live together. You have an example, for example, in Kerala, where I mean, these three biggest religions live together, and and uh, there's there's also yes. harmony there. Uh, yeah, yeah, correct, yeah. correct, yeah. correct. And it is the case all over India. There are places where there's a complete mixed population. Even this movement that is taking place, uh, many of the farmers come from a certain part of India called Uttar Pradesh, West U- uh, UP. It's called UP, and there there's a mixed population. Even in Haryana population are mainly Hindus, Punjab population are mainly Sikhs, and yet they're all together. They're all together fighting. And some of them openly say uh, that some people keep talking about, you know, this community, that community. We are all the community of farmers. Yeah. All of us are farmers. It mm-hmm. really doesn't matter which community we are. Yeah. All right. So there is, that's a tradition of harmony where people know what they are and nevertheless have no uh, desire to wipe out the other person's existence. They don't feel threatened. They neither threaten people nor they feel threatened. So there is a tradition of social and cultural harmony in the country. And ahimsa means non-violence. And this is a tradition which is much older than Gandhi, although Gandhi brought it into the center of India's democratic national movement. And for him, the main thing was that violence means the absence of dialogue, the absence of discourse. And and he also recognized that violence was the best way to strengthen the system. The system was based on violence and it knew best how to deal with violence. And therefore, the only truly radical way of defeating the colonial power was to resist nonviolently, to assert one's dignity, but yet to do it nonviolently. So, I, I mean, there's a friend of mine who's described. Gandhi's whole attitude to politics in very, very simple language. Stand up and say no. <laughs> that's yeah, all. That's right. Don't be one. Just yeah. stand up. Stand yeah. up and say no. And that is something the government cannot deal with. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. So this is what we believe that it's the strongest way to actually confront injustice. You cannot confront injustice by murdering people. You have to do so non-violently. And it becomes very clear who wants the violence. Uh, in, in India, it's been very clear. Violence is a tool, and especially communal religious violence. It's a tool to maintain a certain kind of degree of social animosity. You know, there, there's no denying that in India, there, there are memories of religious animosity. There are. One cannot deny it. Yes. I But mean, it's, know, it's natural. Wound, if you have a wound, you either heal the wound or you throw salt on the wound. Mm. So Gandhi wanted to heal the wound. And there are people who rule who want to throw salt on the wound because that's the only way they can rule. Mm. I think it was the US-American writer Susan Sontag who observed some time ago that to believe in pacifism puts you in the side of the politically disillusional. Will you mind explaining what pacifism means to you as a political doctrine? Uh, you see, pacif- I don't, I, I am not a pacifist. Pacifist means peace at all costs. You know, yeah. 
people mistakenly call uh, call gandhi a pacifist and all he was not a pacifist he was a troublemaker <laughs> Yeah. He was a troublemaker. He made so much trouble. He was a headache to everybody. Mm, yeah, yes. And it's very strange. He was a headache to people on all sides of the spectrum. He was not a pacifist. He recognized that there are social problems and conflicts. They have to be confronted. There's a gross injustice with Indian population. It has to be confronted. But he said that you cannot deal with these problems by launching violence. Violence is the end of dialogue, end of conversation, and there will be no problem. Will be solved. it will continue because the government knows how to deal with it so he was not a pacifist he was making trouble he made trouble for the government he also made trouble for his own people the relationship of indians with gandhi was a very 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 turbulent relationship because he could stand up in front of thousands and millions of people and tell them you are wrong you know nowadays politicians follow behind the most base instincts of the people you'll find it everywhere you know the yes. most base instincts if it gets you popularity you support mm-hmm. it yep. gandhi was not seeking popularity because he didn't want anything for himself he never wanted to be prime minister or president of india he never wanted to get a post he never wanted any money he didn't want anything no one could give him anything so he could speak his mind and he could speak his mind even to his own people when his people were in his opinion doing something wrong so you know when around the time that he died and all there were many people who hated it so so he the it's a very complex relationship so gandhi is not a pacifist gandhi is a political activist what about you i'm not a pacifist either i mean there are many people who think i'm a i'm, I'm a troublemaker all right so but i i speak my mind and i don't refrain from criticizing because of political convenience i have spoken about the 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 violent activities of communists also i used to be a communist i used to be an extreme leftist communist <laughs> and when i got disillusioned with it i said so i said this is wrong and for many many years after that i always even when i launched struggle in fact you gave me this giraffe award because i stuck my neck out for a worker in the, in the college in the university where i worked and the college where i worked a worker who was actually a gardener in that sense he was also an agriculturalist he was a gardener in the college gardener and he was being punished for something he hadn't done for for speaking the truth you know in a certain case so i his salary was stopped and all i went on hunger strike for him i went on hunger strike i was uh, did not eat food for 9 days but mm. basically it, the whole thing ended with me being beaten up Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I got very, very badly beaten up. My leg was broken, and so on. And a whole lot of students came out, and they they launched a protest. Now, many of them were also very angry and wanted to get violent. And I remember telling them, just just don't be violent. Otherwise, our movement will everything will change. Will the focus will change from the issue at hand to the violence? It will shift. So mm. let us focus on the issue at hand. All right. Uh, which is justice for this worker and uh, justice for me now that i have got beaten up but let us not be violent to give our listeners some background in 1992 of all people you an activist who has always advocated for peaceful non-violent solutions to disputes were savagely beaten by six men on your way to work at ramchas college in new delhi you already explained the why now i'd like to know how did you feel back then so at that time i taught in that college for 20 years it's a part of delhi university if you're asking about that particular incident well it's a very long story so there are very few details i can go into now mm-hmm. um but um the point the the point is that that college had a very very autocratic principle and there was a lot of corruption in the college and this gardener was one of the people who was resisting that corruption and he was being penalized by his salary being stopped in a completely illegal manner and i sat on a hunger strike in front of the house of the college principal and said you have to pay his salary and uh, very soon that whole thing snowballed and uh, all the workers of the university came around to my side and so on and then the students of the college also came around to my side and uh, the principal uh, he tried his best to instigate more and more violence so i could see at at a micro level i can see 
is the violence is the language and the grammar of the ruling class. Mm-hmm. Use an old Marxist phrase, ruling class. This the ruling class speaks the language of violence, and they would like the protesters also to speak that language because then they can crush them. So I understood that very clearly, and so even though I had been a Maoist and all, what remained of my Maoism and my communist past was a feeling of anger at injustice. For me, it was in I was incapable of tolerating that injustice which was happening in front of my eyes. So uh, I think that is what the giraffe people noticed that, and so they gave me this giraffe award for sticking my neck out. But that's what happened. Definitely, I and many people, you know, uh, said, you know, he's trying to be a leader, this, that, and the fact is that I didn't ask for anything for myself. I asked for his salary to be paid, and so many of the workers and young students and all they came by my side and they supported me. Mm. And after that, I was physically beaten up so badly that uh, the students became enraged and there was a real strong movement in the college. And finally, they got the principal suspended. It's the first time in the history of Delhi University that a principal of a college was suspended. You know, And so we succeeded, but it was a very, very hard fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, and they had false cases rigged. I, I was implicated in fabricated cases, police cases. So I had to go to court, you know, yeah, along with yeah. these workers mm. for for seven years. And I know the mindset of the of the establishment. They thought they could humiliate me by sending me to court in the company of low caste, so-called low caste people and workers. But because I had been a communist, I really didn't give a damn. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't bother me. I mean, I, I, so I I felt that I was vindicated. I, I got a lot of support from mm. the students, and uh, I felt as a teacher, as a teacher, I have to also give a moral lesson to the student community. It's not simply a matter of teaching in a classroom. Definitely, definitely. So it was a very, very, uh, very, very vibrant and also very painful experience. But I don't regret any of it. Did any situation of this kind happen to you again? Uh, nothing so bad as that. That was very bad because I was physically beaten up. I had to undergo several operations. I mm-hmm. was in hospital. My parents had a bad time of it. So, no, nothing so bad as that. But that was 1982. What happened in the city in 1984 was very, very bad, much worse. This was a personal incident. But in Delhi in 1984, thousands of people were killed. And some of us could see some of the violence that was going on. Thousands were killed. So that 1984 was the most grievous political event in my life that I have seen. After that, of course, at close quarters. After that, there have been other cases like that in India. There have been massacres in mm-hmm. Gujarat in 2002. There have been other instances of mass violence in India. There is there is a tradition of periodic outbursts of mass violence. And I am very clear, having lived here all my life and worked on these issues, that mass violence cannot happen without some degree of complicity by the ruling establishment. Not on that scale. It you can have outbursts of spontaneous violence, but I was told by not, by even senior police officers that no riot continues for 24 hours without somebody wanting it. So it's a very serious issue. Violence in this country is a very serious, serious yeah. issue, and there are various kinds of violence: violence associated with caste warfare, violence of the religious uh, communities fighting with one another, and uh, violence of the Maoists and so on. All right. Mm, yeah, I yeah. have always said that we have to stop the violence, and I still say, mm. but we have to stop it, and we have to resist. And the resistance must be democratic and mass. That's why the the government is in a fix over the farmers mm. because there are hundreds of thousands of people. It's not a small scale. You see, in order to do violence, you don't need many people. No, you know, three fellows can uh, three fellows can get together and do some violence. You know, but in order to move millions of people to activate them to get them interested, it takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. That's why yeah. I said it can only happen if people themselves take over. So in this case, like what is happening now, 
the peasants themselves are fighting. They are not being prodded into action by somebody else. No, they are doing it themselves. They have forged their own organizations. They are feeding themselves food and water and milk and vegetables and grain are coming from the villages to the outskirts of Delhi. They're being kept supplied. They're doing it all. You can go and eat a free meal anywhere outside the Delhi borders. You can eat a free meal and you can live there for a month also. Nobody will ask you for money. So this shows what is going on. That means it's possible to have a mass movement without some political leader telling you that you do this, I know what's best for you and so on. They're, work- they're not thoughtless people. They're thinking. They're working out their strategy. Yeah. So before we go back to the current situation in India, do you think that pacifism is actually more than resistance? That it reveals a truly revolutionary potential? See, I think that the whole world order is based on violence and warfare. The world order is based on violence and warfare People need to simply examine the statistics for global military budgets and they will understand how much of social wealth and resources go into the maintenance of militaries, production of bomb, bombs and guns and aircraft and aircraft carriers and so on. How, mu- how much of social resources go into this? So if we want to be truly radical, we have to try to understand, regardless of nationality, I'm not talking of this country or that country. Mm-hmm. You have to understand on a global level why there is so much of social energy and, and resources spent on war and violence. And therefore, nonviolence is actually the only way you can step out of this domain. You will notice that the activists like in China, Liu Xiaobo, who died a few years ago of cancer in a hospital in China. What was he asking? He was simply asking for a Chinese constitution to be implemented. And he was sent to jail. He was sent to hard yeah. labor. Finally, he fell ill. He was allowed to die. And the government is so scared of one frail man, such a powerful government. You can yeah. see that it's a nonviolent activist who really put <laughs> the fear of God in the whole system. Like even right now in Russia, Putin is so scared of this man, uh, Navalny. Why is he so scared of him? You know. That happens everywhere. Right now, actually, in Cuba, we are having a similar situation. There are a lot of artists and intellectuals trying to make changes. And there have been a peaceful protest in front of the cultural ministry a couple of weeks ago. And one of the government's guys came out from his office and hit one of the protesters just because they were speaking out, talking about the thing nobody wants to talk about, speaking against the system. Absolutely. So I think this is the reason. The system is violence. The whole state structure and the military structure, they are basically crystallization of violence. And they signify paranoia and threat. Mm -hmm. So the only way you can get out of this circle is to be active, but be be active non-violent. That is the problem with people who say, oh, pacifism is non-inactivity. Rubbish. It's 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 violent activism, which actually feeds, feeds the cycle. You know, it's like throwing throwing more <laughs> meat to the beast. You know, uh, I, in physics, you have the concept of black hole. Black hole, you can throw anything at the black hole, it will so- swallow it up. Mm-hmm. You know? So the black hole is something that absorbs. So violence is like the black hole. It keeps yeah, growing. Yeah. The more you throw at it, the more it grows. I am a historian. I have studied history. All right? I can see that from the First World War, in the days when the First World War began, People were going to war in an atmosphere of celebration. Yeah, yeah. They went, they, they were saying, you know, oh, what a jolly war. People were seeing them off, saying we'll be back by Christmas, you know. And the, the damn thing carried on for four years and nobody knew when it will end. And then they said, all right. And then those days they were saying this is the war to end all wars. In fact, even in the French Revolution, they were saying this is the war to end all wars. Yeah. Mm. The French, the revolutionary wars that began in 1792. It carried on till 1815, 25, 23 years of war. Yeah. And it was supposed to be the war that ended all war. So this is a never-ending cycle. So I'm just saying that this cycle of war carried on from the Balkan Wars, the First World War, the Russian Revolution, the Russian Civil War, the Spanish Civil War, the war of I- Italy against Ethiopia, mm. the war, the, it began even earlier, the Boer War in 1902. The Boxer Rebellion in 1900, then the wars in Spain, 
uh, uh, you know uh, was the, the 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 second world war began and in china the war, invasion of manchuria began in 1931 the siege of nanking began it was in 1937 in china the second world war carried on from 1931 to 1949 not 5 years but 20 years <laughs> then after that was the korean war after the korean war was the vietnam war after the vietnam war was the iran iraq war after iran iraq war was another iraq war then there was another iraq. when did it stop this this always yeah. this always been no, you are totally right it doesn't stop so i keep questioning myself why is it so difficult for us to imagine a world without violence we can imagine it's just that we need to wake up and act and act in a way which is efficient to stop it You see, people people can imagine a world, and now we are coming to the point where the where the ecology and the environment cannot sustain it. Is a military aircraft which I mean the pollution, the pollution. I mean you know in Iraq they used uh, uranium, they used depleted uranium to make the uh, artillery shells. So that's contaminated. Soil is got contaminated. The atmosphere is contaminated. So the point is. You know, Noam Chomsky recently wrote an essay called "Internationalism or Extinction," and Martin Luther King also said this. He was a great admirer of Gandhi. He said the choice is not between violence and non-violence. The choice is between non-violence and extinction. So now I have grown old. You know, now I am seventy years old. I have been saying this for many years, even to the uh, comrades in India, the revolutionaries, and all. I said is. You know, Gandhi also used to tell the terrorists, "Yeah, I believe you are very sincere people. You are prepared to sacrifice your life. That's a very good thing. But don't be violent. Stop it." And frankly, I take great inspiration from Gandhi. I, whenever I have been asked to come on uh, radio, uh, the TV, and so on, and, uh, on interviews on this issue, I always speak directly to the comrades and said, "You make the most radical demands you want. Fight for the most radical." economic and social changes you want just stop killing people give a challenge to the ruling class you know actually it's the ruling class which is uh, wanting to overthrow the constitution and that's my argument so i tell the comrades we don't need a violent revolution to overthrow the constitution we need a non violent uprising to defend the constitution that is what is happening Philip, what can we do to bring out a more peaceful imaginary? I think first and foremost we must start talking more. People must speak to each other. You know, in 1968, you don't belong to that generation, but that's my generation, the 1968 generation. The May uprisings, and you may have heard. You live in Germany, so you have heard of Rudi Dushka and Daniel Cohn-Bendit and the May 1968 uprisings. Mm. A few years ago, we celebrated 50 years of May 1968. So. I have written a novel. In fact, I would like you to read it uh, sometime if you can get it. Read it in, in a penguin. It's okay, a, I will. Yeah, yeah, it's I will. about that generation. And so, 1968 was a very big deal for us. The music, the uprising that that year. I don't know whether you know that that one year was absolutely jam-packed. Mexico Olympics 1968. You must have heard of that. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of students were killed. Yes, yes. Tet Offensive in Vietnam in 1968. a murder of martin luther king uh, in 1968 may uprising 1968 in paris all right in paris in 1968 one of the contemporaries said the really interesting thing was everybody was talking yeah that's right It that's was right like an mm. ex- explosion of a conversation everybody is having discussion on the road you know so we need to talk more yeah that's important we need to talk more and talk in a non polemical atmosphere not an atmosphere where you are always trying to demolish the other person but the atmosphere where you are trying to listen you know so we are i believe we are living in a kind of nihilist era we are living in nihilism mm. and nihilism is the is a form of silence a yeah, form of that's right it's ideological speech ideological speech is not speech it's like a it's a kind of silence you can say you can make a noise but nobody is listening exactly yeah so your the simple answer to your question is what can we do i think first and foremost we must start talking more and more people should explain exchange their experience and quite aside from any border and boundary and frontier it's not the border and boundary and frontier that matters it's a global village we have to 
That's why when the government of India says, "Oh, don't interfere in our internal affairs," I said, "Aren't you? Don't you? Don't you want to interfere? You interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. You say that a coup d'état in Burma is, is bad thing. You want support from other people from other countries. So what's wrong? Everything is not contained inside the nation. I'm concerned what happens in Cuba or what happens in Russia, and I want people from there to be concerned." What happens in my country? Of course, so yeah. we are a global community. Yeah, definitely. So I believe in. I'm telling the students. The students of nowadays, they ask me. I tell them, forget about nationalism. You know, the Arctic. If the Arctic is dissolving, if the ice cap is dissolving, if the if the oceans are being polluted with plastic, if the atmosphere has got radiation, if the groundwater is being polluted. if the for amazon for if the amazon forest is being burnt on a daily basis it concerns all of us it's not the private property of brazil you see so neither time it's our problem it's our problem it's our problem yeah how would you describe the distinction between non-violence and the civil resistance in the case of the indian farmers uh there's no distinction there are two separate categories there's civil resistance and civil resistance must be done non-violently Non-violence is a mode of of articulation. It's a mode of speech. It's a mode of communication. It's a kind of self-restraint. You control yourself. You discipline yourself. We all do that. So you restrain yourself as a as a kind of respect for yourself and respect for other people. Violence is not something you do to other people. You also do it to yourself. If you are violent to others, you are also doing doing violence to your own character. So, therefore, it is the civil resistance is going on, and civil resistance is only possible non-violently. Otherwise, it becomes guerrilla warfare, Che Guevara, Foco, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's not going to work. No, it's not. You know, we have been talking about the farmers and Gandhi, the one who had called them fathers of universe. Do you feel there has been a change in their movement and in the public perception and awareness of it within the last decades? I think that in the last couple of decades, the middle class and the urban India has been, if you are talking about India, they have been taken up by this dream of endless growth and prosperity. The reality is that these are not achievable. If everybody wants to live like uh, 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 as if they are living in Manhattan, then it's not going to happen. All right, we have to simplify our life. So you have to reduce your demands. You have to reduce, simplify your life. Gandhi used to say, "There is enough for human being need. There is not enough for our greed." So you have to simplify. And uh, in that sense, people of India, the urban India, were taken up by this dream. Now that dream is falling apart. Yes. So people have more respect, and as I said, there are other issues concerning the farmers and agriculture. One is that the village is the sole safety net of the people, of the poor people of the country. Villages are very important as a safety cushion. Secondly, after the pandemic, millions of people have gone back to the village, so the village becomes more important mm -hmm. as a place where people can stay. Safely and happily, rather than keep on dreaming about going to uh, to Bombay or Delhi and living in a place with lots of malls and shops and mm -hmm. so on, because it's going to be very difficult to have that. To begin with, every mall, if you want to produce enough electricity to run all these uh, marketplaces, then you have to, you know, burn more coal and oil and fossil fuel and so on. So the entire pattern of production and consumption and attitude towards nature and water and air and land has to change. Yeah, it's not sustainable. Yeah, it is not sustainable. Therefore, the, the people who live on land and who have a sense of what the water and the air and the earth mean, those people have become even more important. So I think this movement now it is shaking up Indian society because the peasants are saying. We are the guys who produce everything. You can't treat us like this. We don't want to come to your city. You want to come to us and take over our land. We were not going to allow it. So it's a competition between worldviews, which is also taking place. Okay, so Dilip Punjab Haryana farmers protest. What can be expected now? That I'm afraid. When I was much younger, I used to be a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I cannot now predict. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot predict what will happen. 
uh, I think that uh, it will shake up a lot of people. But what will happen ultimately, I don't know. It is, uh, it's politically, it's a very, very turbulent time. Mm, yeah, it's a ticking bomb. I hope it succeeds. I hope the government makes concession. I hope the government steps back. I feel very bad. Right now, farmers are sitting, even as we speak, just a few miles from where I'm sitting. The farmers are sitting out there in the cold. It's been very cold recently. Mm. It's been raining. They're sitting out there. There are many elderly people also. There are women also. They're sitting there for months on end. Mm. You know, Some people are dying. But they're sticking it out. So I feel very bad for them. The government has removed the toilets. So the, you know, now the facilities that they did have, a few facilities, those have been removed. So it's becoming very difficult for them to go to the toilet, to get water. Gosh. But what's amazing is the level of social solidarity. There are farmers who are sending milk from 200 kilometers away. They're sending milk on a daily basis. That's beautiful. There are other farmers who are walking with water to give them water. Solidarity. It's amazing. It's absolutely astonishing. So let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Dilip, thanks for accepting the invitation, for sharing your thoughts with our audience. I'd love to talk to you more, but I know the clock is ticking and you are a busy man. So thanks for now. I'm always happy. Thank you very much for having me. I'm always happy and my good wishes to all your listeners. And there we are at the end of the podcast to restore your faith in humanity. My guest today, Girafido Dilip Simeon a well-known labor historian and public intellectual in India. Thousands of farmers, especially from Punjab and Haryana, are still staging a sit-in protest along Delhi borders. The farmers are demanding a complete rollback of the new farm reform laws and the guarantee on the minimum support price system being retained. The situation, after three months, remains unresolved. You'll find the stories of the Cantari alumni and the Giraffe Heroes, the stories of people sticking their necks out every Tuesday on Spotify, iTunes, our homepage, and every other place where you get your podcast. And if you subscribe, you don't have to look out for us. We'll be coming to you. Another thing, if there is a friend, a family member, or an organization doing a great work in the community, someone sticking her his its necks out, just nominate this person or organization as a Giraffe Hero to tell us about them. Come and visit us at giraffe-heroes.eu. Next week, this time for sure, is going to be all about taboos in our podcast. I have two guests, Aparna from India and Ruang from Thailand. My name is Jean-Pierre Aguiar-Durañona, and I hope you join us also in our social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. But more importantly, I hope you join us again next week. Stick your neck out the weekly podcast of the Giraffe Heroes Foundation.